You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, my name is James Fields, serve as the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Indeed, a, a pleasure and joy uh, to be with you guys as we look at God's Word together. Um, if you don't mind, would you mind standing with me for the reading of God's Word? We're going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew, um, looking at this profound Gospel that we've been able to look at for the, almost going on two years now, uh, which is very, very exciting. So I'm thankful for the Lord's provision of this book and uh, allowing us to see um, King Jesus and what his kingdom looks like as a result of our reading. Uh, we'll read this morning in Matthew chapter 13. We'll start at verses 51 and we'll go to 58. And it reads as follows. It says, have you understood all these things? They answered him, yes. Therefore, he said to them, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom treasures, new and old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, where does this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this mother, isn't, this, isn't his mother Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all of these things? And they were offended by him. Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and and in his own household. Verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would go forth and uh, allow your word to go forth and not come back void. Let some mind be changed. Let some soul be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross. Thank you that you have given us this time to learn and to grow and to grow in our affections, not just for uh, your word, but for you. So Lord, we do pray that you would exceed our expectations this morning. Father, where we may be thinking wrongly of you, I pray that you will correct that thinking and help us to understand you as you have revealed yourself through Scripture. Grow us, Lord, in loving and appreciating how you have revealed yourself to us and not how the world, how our our circumstances or even life situations um, cause us to think differently of you. Father, as always, I ask that you take my little, make much of it, that you will glorify yourself as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a clear notion that we see throughout the the Bible, especially in in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is is the the notion that, that, that we see, is that what we believe about Jesus will determine how we worship Jesus. What we believe about Jesus will determine how we worship Jesus. If I could put it on my own language, if I could put my own twist on on that notion, I would simply say this. Our view of God determines our pursuit of God. Our view of God determines our pursuit of God. I love how Jesus opens the text this morning in verse 51. Our text starts off with a simple question, and the question is is simply this. It says, have you understood all these things? Have you or do you understand all these things? And this concept about what we believe about Jesus will determine how we worship isn't just a nice cliche or a nice saying, but from this question, we can discern that what we believe about God and what we believe about his teachings really matter to him. We see that Jesus is concerned that the disciples viewed God and his kingdom rightly. 
Therefore, he asked, have you understood all these things? Now, that's a good place for us to push pause and just to remind ourselves, what have we been learning? What are all these things that Jesus is talking about? I love how it's summarized here, actually in the Haley um, Bible handbook. It talks about the kingdom that Jesus intended to establish. It says this, quoting from, this, from, from the little handbook, it says, the, the kingdom Jesus intended to establish was utterly different from what was commonly expected of the Messiah. The kingdom of God is grasped with the heart and the spirit. This is why Jesus used stories or parables about ordinary everyday events to illustrate the origin, development, present-day character, and future consummation of the kingdom. Understanding the meaning of the parables require a receptive heart rather than a logical mind, which is why the parables, in fact, obscure Jesus' message from those whose heart was unwilling to listen. See, up to this point, Jesus has given us um, about six, six, uh, six different parables that are talking about the kingdom of God and what that entails. In Matthew, he loves this aspect of kingdom. He uses this term at least 40 times. And listen to how um, the same uh, Haley's uh, workbook or, or Haley's um, handbook describes this kingdom. It says, a political kingdom in which a Jewish nation under their Messiah would rule is what the people were expecting. Not a political kingdom, but God's reign in the hearts of people that will control and transform their lives. It says, the human heart is a realm in which Jesus came to reign. He came for all mankind to love him so that he can change us into his own image out of an affection for him, devotion to him, and adoration of him will grow all of the beauty and comfort of life, the transformation of character, and the regeneration of the soul. I love this reminder that the heart is the realm in which Jesus came to reign. And when we hear this question about that Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood these things? He's trying to get a checkpoint with them to make sure that they truly understand. Why, you, why do you ask? Well, because our view of God not only determines our pursuit of God, um, so that Jesus was concerned about their understanding. Take notice, the extreme concern of Christ was that his, un, his audience understood him. I think this is a good lesson for us who are preachers and teachers of the word in our homes and Sunday school class up here in the pulpit. It's a good lesson for those who preach and teach, uh, have a teaching and preaching role in the church because we see here that Jesus wasn't just about disseminating information. He was concerned about them understanding what he has proclaimed and what he has taught. Jesus' main concern was for their understanding or lack thereof. Now notice what Jesus didn't ask. Jesus didn't ask, why don't you understand? He didn't assume the worst in them. Jesus didn't say, why can't you understand? He didn't assume incompetence in them. Jesus didn't even ask the question, when will you understand? He was not impatient with them. Notice that the patience of Jesus in his teaching. His main concern was for their understanding. He was giving them a big truce for small minds, but he still was concerned about their understanding. And from that, we have four lessons learned about Jesus. The first thing is this, is that Jesus wants us to understand what he teaches. He wants us to understand what he teaches. Jesus does not want you to be confused. He doesn't want you to be um, misguided. He wants you to understand thoroughly every single thing that he brings for your understanding to comprehend. The second thing we need to know about Jesus is that we should ask when we don't understand. I love how James puts this. James chapter 1, the, the great book of James, has, has a, he has a great name. Yeah I, yeah, I know you can laugh at that. That's a great, the, the greatest name in the Bible, James. No, I'm just playing. It's not the greatest name. But, but in James chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, 
who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect anything to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his or her ways. James, what are you talking about here? He's simply saying this, if you lack wisdom, if you lack understanding about something that you're trying to understand about God or something that he's doing in your life, he's saying, ask him for wisdom. But he also gives us a warning. He says, you can ask for wisdom, but let you, verse, verse 6, but let him ask in faith without doubting. You ever wonder what he's talking about here about doubting? What, what are you doubting? The doubting comes not in, um, not in the aspect of asking, of how you ask. The aspect of doubting comes in that you're doubting that God is a good God that wants you to understand the things that you're asking him about. You're doubting the character, the nature of God. You're doubting the goodness of God, that God wants to reveal to you the mysteries of heaven. He wants to give you wisdom. He wants to give you favor. He wants to give you a perspective. But we come to him doubting the goodness, the character, and the generosity of our God. Isn't that true? And the Bible says in James that a person who doubts such the character of God when asking... The person who doubts the character of God, when you actually go to God looking for wisdom, they, just, they, they, they um, compare us to, a, 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 um, he says, he's like a doubter is like a surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. If you can see this aspect of wind, the wind just takes it wherever it wants to go. One day God is good, one day he's bad. One day he's for me, one day he's against me. One day he's all right, the other day he's, he treats me as an enemy. You're like a seed that is driven and tossed by the wind. And the Bible says very explicitly in James chapter 1, verse 7, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Why do I keep coming back to this aspect of our view of God determines our pursuit of God? Because of James chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. Because how you view God matters. And these four lessons that Jesus gives us about asking this question helps us to know that Christ wants you to understand what he is teaching us. Number two, we should ask when we don't understand. Number three, there is no disgrace or reproach for not understanding. You can go to God and say, God, this is too much for me. I don't understand. One of the greatest statements in the, in the, in the scriptures, in my opinion, was a man who looked at Jesus and says, listen, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> I believe to a certain point, but you're going to have to help me to believe in the way that you're asking me to believe because I can only believe so far. Beloved, there's no disgrace or reproach for not understanding. But here's number four. And therefore, we should be ready to help others to understand and be so observant when they don't understand. As teachers of God's word, as ministers of God's word, as those who proclaim and live and embody the gospel, we should be patient with others as much as Christ is and has been and continues to be patient with us. Amen? He wants us to understand. Look at verse 52 with me in Matthew 13. They answered him and said, yes. And then he says, therefore... This therefore is saying, since you understand these things about the kingdom, since you understand all these aspects about what the kingdom is and what, what I'm trying to do, therefore, he said to him, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom treasures, new and old. This teacher of the law, it can also be, um, can be um, identified as not just a teacher of law, but as a scribe. And these are two things that we see about this person. There, there are two ways that Jesus compares the disciples to scribes and to an owner of the house. The first way is this, is that we are to treasure the, we are to treasure the understanding that God has given us. We see that right there in the first aspect of the teacher of the law. The teacher of law, the re re revert, re uh, is, it refers to a scribe or to a Jewish scholar. 
And we must be as devoted as scribes, as disciples of Christ. We have to be as devoted as scribes were in, in, in the ancient times. Not devoted to religion, but devoted to God, his kingdom, his gospel, and his word. We must be devoted. We must be devoted as scribes are and treasure the teaching and the understanding and the words has given, that God has given us. But not only must we treasure God's word, we also have a task to share it. We see that in the owner of the house. Verse 52, it says, Every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom treasures, both new and old. This owner of the house, if the, if the um, teacher of the law tells us about what we are to treasure, the owner of the house tells us our task. You see, the owner of the house possessed the treasures of food. And they had two primary duties in dealing with food. One, he or she was to store the old food and keep it fresh. But then two, he or she was to add um, the new food to the old, serving both at the appropriate times. So what is Jesus getting to? Jesus is getting to understanding that a true disciple is like a head of a household who possesses an enormous treasure. We don't just look to the teachings of Jesus we also look to the teachings that gone before Jesus that point us to Jesus. That we are to treasure both the New and the Old Testament. We are to treasure both the Old and the New Revelation of God. We are to treasure the Old and the New Truth of God. We are to treasure the Old and the New Messages of God. We are to treasure the Old and the New Covenants of God. This aspect of New and Old is what the task we have. And if you have such a great treasure... If you have such a great storehouse of food, you want to share it with those who may not understand. Notice with me that Jesus is checking on their understanding so that they can be teachers to those who don't understand. He says, listen, do you understand these things? They said, yes. He says, okay, now that you understand these things, you don't just keep them to yourselves. You don't just keep the goodness of God to yourself. The revelation of how God has revealed uh, himself through the scriptures. He has pointed us to his son from the Old Testament to the New. You don't just keep that information to yourself, but you, you share it with the world that may not understand. One of our values here at this church is missionality. And one of the tasks of being on mission is that we don't just go on mission for no reason. We go on a mission with the news that Jesus saves that he has saved, he is saving, and he is able to save to the utmost. Jesus takes this understanding that they have, and he compares it to a scribe. He compares it to an owner of a house who brings out storeroom treasures, both new and old. And he's pointing out that there are fresh insights that are of, that are of value, and that there are also teachings that have stood the test of time. Jesus is saying that the new teachings his followers are embracing do not, do not go, throw away or do not, um, do not do away with the old teachings of the Old Testament. But they are the key to understanding them. See, what we believe about Jesus will determine how we worship Jesus. What our view of God truly does determine our, our, our view of God determines our pursuit of him. And we see this time and time again. I love it here because at verse 53, there's a hard pivot that takes place. At verse 52, Jesus ends up ending his parables, his teachings that he is teaching his disciples. And like a good teacher, Jesus, what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I need you to take the things that I've said to you in private, the things that I've taught you, the things that you have understand, and now we're going to go into the world and we're going to actually see these things play out. We're going to actually see what it looks like. To, to treasure God's word and also to how, what it looks like to not to treasure God's word. We're going to look like what it looks like to be a scribe who is, is, is treasuring God's word, who is a disciple of the word, an owner of the house who is willingly sharing the good news, both the old and the new of the revelation and the testaments of God. And we're going to see an example of those who are just maybe not forsaking the new because they're so 
so focused on the old. In verse 53, Matthew writes this. He says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. That's very important for us. It's a hard pivot. Matthew wants us to know that there is a new thing coming. It's not, it's not the same thing as, as we've seen in the past. There's a, there, Jesus is taking his students from the practice field to the game field. He's taking them from the laboratory of talking about the kingdom and experiencing the kingdom to actually take them into the world to see how this actually is being applied in the world around them. He says, verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. Verse 54, he went to his hometown and he began to teach them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. Notice in verse 54, he says he went to his hometown. His hometown is Nazareth. His, he remember, up to this point, Jesus had left Nazareth because of their rejection of him. And he took up shop in a town called Capernaum where he was there living with Peter and with his, his mother and his families. And now he goes back to his hometown. And notice, we're not told why he went back. We don't know. But one thing we can say is that Jesus going back to a place that he was rejected by the first time shows us that he loved them. Shows us that he loved his hometown. And although he had much to offer in helping them in their needs, he knew that they were as other men lost and without hope. So he went back to the place where he was rejected. He longed to help those whom he had played with, grown up with, and rubbed shoulders with for over 30 years. And when he gets there, notice it says he began to teach them in their synagogue. I don't know about you, but man, I would love to be in a Bible study with Jesus. <laughs> he goes back to his hometown. He goes to the synagogue. Notice it doesn't say the synagogue. It says their synagogue. He goes to their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this, all this wisdom and his miraculous powers? It's amazing to me to see Jesus' patience and also his persistence. See, Jesus is not only patient with us, but he's also persistent with us. That even when we don't get it time and time again, even when we're hard-headed or stubborn or maybe ignorant, Jesus continues to pursue those who reject him. Hallelujah to that. Why do we go on mission? Because Jesus continues to pursue those who reject him. You don't, have to, you, you don't get a one-time um, one option with God. God is the type of God who continues to pursue you despite your rebellion, despite your ignorance, despite you not knowing and maybe even not believing, God still pursues you because he loves you. And we see that in his love for the, for the Nazarene, for this people at Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about it later, but Nazareth was a ghetto. It wasn't pretty to be in Nazareth. And that was part of the problem that they were facing, that they were actually had a prejudice against Jesus because they came from a place of nothing and they saw themselves as a people of nothing. And they're wondering, how can someone who came from nothing be, some, be something? How can this man who I, I saw, this toddler I saw running around the streets who I babysitted, who I taught how to cut wood, and I helped him when he had homework or to learn the, 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 learn the teachings at the synagogue. How can this one come back and be something so great when he comes from such a horrible background, such a depleted place? Fifty-four, he went to his hometown. He began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and amazed. Listen, <coughs> I'm glad that word is in there because it helps me to know that heaven's going to be great because when I get to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him from the Bible, I'm going to be astonished and amazed because that's how they were. They were astonished, and this is what they say. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this a carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother Mary called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? 
So where does he get these things? For me, this, as I was studying the text this week, it, it really helped me to see um, this aspect of the sin of prejudice. And I'm not talking about racial prejudice here, even though that could play a factor, but it, do, it doesn't right now in the text. But prejudice is a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. I'll say that again. Prejudice is a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. You see, while prejudice always has its reason, it, all, it oftentimes refutes itself. Because here it is. Jesus has been doing so much in the world. He's healing. He is teaching. He is mesmerizing the world, and he goes back to his hometown, the people whom he loves, the people that have reared him and have discipled him, and they just can't get it. And they can't get it, not because they, they, they don't experience the awesomeness of God. Listen, they said they were amazed, and they, they were amazed by his teaching and astonished by his teachings in the synagogue. They acknowledge his wisdom. They acknowledge his miraculous powers. But what they can't acknowledge is that it's from God. This can't be from God. <laughs> this can't be. There has to be another reason. I know his family. I know his history. See, Jesus comes from a village family. He didn't belong to the higher-ups. He's just like us. He's a, he's a villager. Where could he get all these things? He doesn't belong here, and he can't teach us because I can't logically understand who's taught him or what he's teaching. In their minds, they, they tried to cut Jesus down to his own size. Notice here also that Joseph is not mentioned in, in here. They talk about they talk about him in verse 55, isn't this the carpenter's son? But everybody else, Mary, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and even his sisters, are named specifically. Could be probably that at this point Joseph had passed away. That he's, that's why he's referred simply to as being the carpenter's son and not as, as Joseph. We don't know that for sure, but this is a small indicator of that reality that could have been. Isn't this the carpenter's this son? I think this is a good question for us as we move forward to think through as a church. In what ways are you rejecting or what ways have you rejected Jesus in your life? What, what categories do you have a hard time fitting Jesus into? That Jesus, you're good enough to deal with my, my health, but you're not a good, good enough to deal with my, my marriage. You're good enough to deal with my children, but you're not good enough to deal with the secret sin that I just struggle with all the time. It's just going to just, it's going to just be a part of my life, Jesus, because it's just always been a part of my life. What categories do you have a hard time fitting Jesus into? Are there specific ways where you doubt the goodness, the power, the necessity of Jesus in your life? If so, where? And if so, to what extent? This is the final question I want to ask for us to ponder through is this. Do you see Jesus as a treasure or do you see Jesus as your greatest treasure? I love what A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Pursuit of God. He talks about God being our greatest treasure. He says these words. He says, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him. Or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so temperate that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he, must, uh, if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel the sense of loss for having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. As we come to a close, I want to look at verses 53 and 58, and I want to give us four reasons why Jesus was rejected by 
his family, his, his people in Nazareth. Let me give you the first reason. The first reason why Jesus was rejected was this, is that the people were too familiar with Jesus' narrative. There's an old saying that says this, familiarity often breeds contempt. Contempt means less respect or complacency. They wondered how in the world a person from their own midst could possess such wisdom and authority. As we said earlier, Nazareth was a, was a conquered city and it was despised by the Roman conquerors. The city was also despised by the rest of the Jewish nation. Remember what Philip said? He said in John chapter 1 verse 15, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When, when he came to hear about um, looking, coming by Philip to go look and see and find Jesus, he says, can anything, come good? can anything good come out of Nazareth? That tells you the deplorable state that that city was in. You see, from a sense of inferiority, it can cause scorn and it can also cause spite. You see, the people's rejection was strong. And inferior, inferiority is caused by being bruised. It's a feeling of being bypassed or unblessed by the powers that be, whether God or something else. And this is what caused scorn and spite. And although Jesus taught them well, and although Jesus gave them his best, they still rejected him because they were too familiar with Jesus' narrative. Number two, not only were they too familiar with Jesus' narrative, the people did not understand the source of his wisdom and power. Now notice this, they recognized his unusual wisdom and works. They heard his wisdom and saw his works, but they understood neither. They would not acknowledge that he really came from God. And again, the reason why was because Jesus lacked the proper credentials in education. He didn't fit the bill. He, didn't, he wasn't uh, uh, one who had gone off to learn under the best scholars of the day. He was one that was familiar, that was close. Remember, Jesus spent 30 years in Nazareth or around Nazareth for 30 years preparing for a three-year ministry. So if anybody knew him well, it was these people. They knew him. They knew him. They served him. They worked alongside of him. And they couldn't understand how 30 years of preparation could lead to three years of just complete catastrophe in their minds. Maybe even false teaching in their minds. Jesus came from a humble and ordinary family. His father was a carpenter. His mother was a housewife and a mother. His parents did not achieve any prominence or have any of the children risen above or given promise of more, um, being more than just a child born in the town of Nazareth. So here's the question they're struggling with. Who taught Jesus? Who taught him? We see the works. We see the power. Where did he get this from? Culturally, Jesus would have been taught by his parents. He would have been taught at the local synagogue, or maybe he would have been taught by God himself. How could Jesus, how could Jesus possibly be who he was, claiming to be the Messiah, God's very own son, if we didn't know, we don't, if he doesn't have the proper credentials, if he doesn't have the proper pedigree, he doesn't have the proper lineage? It's funny, though, because if they, thought, if they stopped and asked those questions, then you have to remember that Joseph was from the lineage of David. That if they did their homework, right, if they, they really thought about it, that he actually came from the lineage of David. Not only that, but Mary had a miraculous virgin birth that honestly happened 30 years ago, maybe 30 plus years ago, depending on the timing of this, this incident. But these stories and this lineage pointed to something that they just were not willing to admit and not willing to see because Jesus had become too familiar to them and because their prejudice against him would not allow them to see beyond what was placed before them. Notice they could not deny Jesus' greatness, but they could deny his geneograms. They could not deny the results only the origin. And the, the rational conclusion would have been that if he did not receive his credentials from humanity, then he must have received it from heaven. That maybe he was who he claimed 
to be. Family, God, be careful of discounting people because of pedigree and because of education. Family, God, be careful of judging by the outside, the exterior of a person, when God doesn't just look at the exterior, God looks at the heart. He looks at the heart of the person. God doesn't choose us because we were the best or the cream of the crop. He often chooses the weakest, the most frail, the most helpless to do his bidding. And not because, not because he is um, just, just attracted um, to, to poor or broken things, but because poor and broken things are the prerequisite for, for God to work in our lives. That you have to be broken before God in order for God to use you in a mighty way. And that brokenness isn't, has, doesn't have to look like having zero money in your bank account. And it doesn't look like have you coming from a certain school or, or forsaking high-achieving uh, 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 high schools to go to lower-achieving schools so you can stay humble. It's not about that. It's the brokenness of the heart. It's an openness to the Lord. That God, wherever I am, whatever you have given me, nothing, nothing goes above or nothing supersedes the goodness and reality of you. As A.W. Tozer told us that we have a treasure that is greater than any treasure given to us in this world. And his name is Jesus. He is a treasure that is above all treasures that help us to appreciate every single treasure that we have. You can't really treasure the treasures that you have unless you treasure Jesus first and foremost. Because he's the one that puts those things in perspective. And we can say like, like the great Old, Test, Old, Testament, um, the Old Testament prophet Job, when things go, don't go our way or things are not working out the way we think they should work out, he says, listen, bless, he said, the Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Why can he say that? He can say that because God has been placed as the greatest treasure. And every other treasure has been realigned and reorganized by the treasure that God is. And if he is your greatest treasure, there's any other treasure that God takes away or adds to, it, it, it subsides and it is um, subordinate to the reality and the beauty that God has given us in Jesus as being the preeminent, preeminent one in our life. Jesus was rejected because of them being too familiar with him. He was rejected because of his, the, they did not understand the source and power of his wisdom. But ver, verse 57, look there with me. Jesus was also rejected because the people were offended by him. Verse 57 says this, and they were offended by him. The literal meaning of, offend, of to be offended is to stumble. In other words, his neighbor and his friends, they stumbled over him. Now, this was not just something that came out the blue. Isaiah chapter 8 actually speaks to this. Isaiah chapter 8. If you have your Bible, flip there with me in the Old Testament. That's why we love, if you have, bring your Bibles with you uh, so we can look at these, these things together. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Look, listen to the words of the Lord in Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. It says this, talking about the soon coming Messiah. It says, he will be a sanctuary but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many, verse 15, many will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. See, this was a prophetic word that God had given even before Jesus came through the, the womb of Mary, that they would be not just be offended by him, but they would literally stumble over the reality of who Christ was. It means that Jesus didn't make sense to them. For them to stumble over him means that Jesus didn't make sense to them and they could not understand or comprehend him. We've got a couple of good pictures of this in Matthew, this word stumble. This is not the first time this Greek word has been used. Matthew 5, 29 and 30 Listen to these words about Jesus. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. 
It is better for you to lose part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Verse Matthew 11, verse 6, we also see this word stumble. Jesus talks about his prophetic ministry. He says, the blind, this is his response to John the Baptist about, is he really the Messiah? He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the blind are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And then even two weeks ago, we saw this aspect of stumble in Matthew 13, 21, talking about the seed that fell on rocky ground. It says, it says this in that verse, Matthew 13, 21. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away or stumble in Matthew 13, 21. So this aspect of stumbling is not something new. It's not a new thing that Jesus is coming up with. It's actually him fulfilling a prophetic word that's already been spoken, and he's already been spoken over them. Lastly, verse 58, we see not only did the people reject him because they were offended by him, but also they rejected him because they didn't believe in him. Verse 58 says, and they did not do miracles there because of, he did not do miracles there, because of their unbelief. See, there's a notion out there that says that God can't work where there is unbelief. And that is partly true because God will not choose, God will choose not to do things that he wants to do when you don't take what he said, what he has to say seriously. I'll say that again. God will choose not to do the things that he wants to do when you don't take what he says, has to say, Seriously, this is a good reminder for all of us about this unbelief that we don't want to be a hindrance to God's work in your life. Believe in his word, trust in his promises, and follow him in complete obedience to the best of your abilities. And trust him with the parts that you just aren't willing or can't see yourself obeying. You see, unbelief is the lack of openness, openness to the reality and the power of God in one's life. Consequently, unbelief shuts God out. It pushes him away, and it refuses to let God's love and power be at work in your life. However, this is very important, unbelief doesn't totally prevent God, but it only limits the possibility of God's sovereign rule within the life of his creation. I was trying to think all week about a good example for this, and I couldn't come up with, but this is the best one I came up with. So like it or not like it, it's fine. I, it's the best one I could come up with this week. But to say that, yeah, unbelief doesn't totally prevent God. See, God is a sovereign God, and God can do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants, but God has also set up our, our world with rules. He's set up our worlds with, with decrees that he is not going to go against his word. He's not going to go against the word that he's spoken. The example that I thought of was unbelief before God is like taking an ice cube into hell and hoping that it will extinguish its flames. That may not be a good one, but that's what I came up with. It's like taking an ice cube, right? <laughs> taking an ice cube to hell. You're surrounded by fire. You're like, I'm going to take these flames out. And before you even speak those words, your hand is a, has a puddle of water in it, right? It, it, it's like uh, taking a flame down into the ocean and hoping to evaporate it. It's just like, it's not going to work. Not that you can't take an ice cube into hell. You can take it. But guess what? It's not going to last long. We cannot say that Jesus never healed unless someone had faith. Jesus, by his gracious nature, commonly worked his miracles in the atmosphere of faith, and that normally only those who, with faith were in a position to receive healing from his hands. You see, even though people may not have demonstrated faith, God still was gracious to them. Think about John 5. Think about the lame man. The lame man who didn't even know Jesus' name, and Jesus saw him and healed him. And when he was asked about his healing, he didn't even know who healed him. 
And Jesus came up to him and said, hey, looks like you're, you're doing well. He said, yes. And then he went and told the scribes and the Pharisees at that moment, hey, that's the guy who healed me. And they realized that was Jesus. And they said, from that point on, they wanted to plot and kill him. That man didn't have faith, but Jesus still responded to him. Think about the, the son who was dead from the woman at Nain. That imagine this, a woman who was taking her son to be buried to be put in the grave for all of eternity. She, everyone is in this line, this processional line, to take this boy who had died young, at a young age, and put him into the ground to commemorate his life and celebrate his life. And upon this funeral procession, going to put his body into the ground, Jesus sees this procession, and he goes and heals him and rises from the dead, and he turns a a funeral procession into a resurrection, a resurrection party and in the matter of a heartbeat. Luke 7, 11 through 25 is that verse if you want to go check that aspect out. Think about the man who was demonly possessed, who was in the grave cutting himself, harming himself, doing great harm. He was doing so much harm that nobody wanted to be around him. No one could tame him. Not even the chains they had put on him could, could contain the man's strength. And his wrath. But Jesus, in the kindness and the graciousness of his being, went and healed him and put that man from a plate of, cra- of being in a state of craze, a crazed state, into having a right mind. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus, on his way to, per- purchase, to uh, torture and to enslave Christians, to do them bodily harm. On his way, to be a roadblock to the advancement of the kingdom of God. And on his way on on the road to Damascus, he he, he met God, he met Jesus on that road, and his life forever changed. See, while unbelief is a a huge huge, um, barrier in our lives, it's not an ultimate barrier. See, at Nazareth, Jesus was met with unbelief And I love what it says here. It says, he did not do many miracles, though he did do some. (laughs) Wasn't that, it wasn't that he, he didn't do any miracles. He did some, but he didn't do many. And here's where the discrepancy comes in to play. Jesus desired to do many miracles for his people, for the people of Nazareth. He had a heart to do it, but he couldn't do it. And why couldn't he do it? He couldn't do it because of their unbelief, because their unwillingness to believe and to see the reality that God had given him through the son Jesus. Church family, I pray. Listen, all of us in this room have aspects of unbelief. We have doubts, we have fears, and I don't want to diminish those because those are real. But here's where the beauty comes in in your walk with Jesus is that those those doubts and those fears and those aspects of unbelief, they start to they start to evaporate. They start to erase and erode slowly as you start to be in the presence of God and know his character. The things that you thought were impossible, the things that maybe you were afraid to pray for, the things that you just didn't even want to bring to God because you just felt so much shame and guilt. You start slowly opening up to him like a flower before the sun. And it's my hope and prayer as a pastor of this church that we can grow in that way. That we will grow in our ability to take things that maybe we would withhold from God or even from one another. And we will start to allow God to to open those things up to him. And to see how how gracious and kind and to view God um, as he's revealed himself through scriptures and come to a God that is not just able, but a God who desires and wants to create change in our lives. Maybe the problem that maybe the problem you're dealing with is not that God can't handle it. Maybe the problem is that you've been handling it too long. It's been in your hands. It's been your problem. You're trying to fix it. And God is looking at you graciously with a smile on his face and say, trust me, my child, I can handle this for you. Even that, even that. Greatest prayer, my favorite part of the Lord's prayer is a simple part. He says, give us today our daily bread. 
Give us today our daily bread. Bread is something that, honestly, we all can get apart from God. You don't need God to get bread. You can go to the store right now, take $2 out your pocket, and get bread at the corner store. But the reason why he asks us to pray for bread is because God wants us to know that not only he is our provider, but God is a God who wants to give us the things that even we think we can get apart from him. The things we take for granted, <laughs> like bread. <laughs> we don't ask God for bread. If you're like me, you have problems remembering to pray over your food before you eat it because your kids are hungry and you're hungry and you're trying to eat. You're like, oh man, did we pray? Let's, let's go back and pray. God wants, to, wants you not just to take the, the hard things and difficult things, but God also wants you to give you the things that are simple. The things that you, you think that you, you've been doing all your life seemingly apart from him. We do nothing apart from him, but seemingly apart from him, even those things he wants you to bring to him. Bring it all to him. Because just as much as you wouldn't, you wouldn't bring a hard thing to God, us bringing simple things to God is also a sign of unbelief. It's also a sense of lack of dependency upon him. It's not just the big things, right? It's not just the big things. It's also the small things, the mundane things, the everyday things. Let us be a people that bring both the mundane and the trivial to our God, knowing and seeing him for how he's revealed himself as a good and faithful God a good provider for us all. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S. Ellie. God bless.